Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 118. Room service. Is there supposed to be a knife in my cake? Mm-hmm. Ah, 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 ah. Welcome back, everyone. Hello? 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 Hello. <laughs> yes? Hello? Hey, Julius. How are you doing? There's some creepy, ominous environment here. I have a sense of foreboding. Almost as if I was being stalked through the halls of a haunted (laughs) hotel. (laughs) Maybe so. Maybe so. Other than that, though, things going well? Things are going quite well. I attempted to run Tabletopia for Subterra, game currently on Kickstarter. First time trying out Tabletopia. Mm -hmm. And what is Tabletopia? Uh, If you're familiar with Tabletop Simulator, Tabletop Simulator is a digital... Uh, board game table, relatively open. You can do anything in there. Uh, it's physics based, so there's no rules and there's no scripting, unlike, uh, you know, say, board game online or board game arena, rather, BGA. Um, so it's just a big giant tabletop and tabletop simulator. Now, tabletop simulator costs money just for the program. Tabletop Tabletopia, to my understanding, is a very similar program, but the base level is free. You just don't get access to premium games. But it seems like some Kickstarter is going to be coming out that will let you do demos of games using Tabletopia so that you can try out a game without having to download it and try stuff. So I was trying to get it to work earlier today, uh, but I... Well, it seems like there's maybe a user issue. I was not having it work very well for me, so I'm going to have to give it another shot another time. Mm, okay, that's a that's a cool idea though. You know, let people try it out for free online. Yeah, assuming people are able to deal with like the digital scape of doing it. I mean, it's certainly easier to you know get a demo at something like your local convention or something like that than have to deal with doing online stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, but if it's it's between doing it online or printing it out yourself and playing it at home to decide if you're going to back something, maybe maybe they'll get more people to try it out this way. I expect they'll get more people to try it out because I imagine it's not too hard to put it together. I know I've put together some stuff for Tabletop Simulator, and depending on the level of complexity, it's not too hard, especially if you're anyway using Tabletop Simulator or something similar to do your playtesting on. So you anyway have all the files, so you don't really lose anything by just putting online and letting anyone who wants to come do it, come do it. Is that the sort of thing you would ever try to do, Albert? I don't tend to enjoy playing board games online too much. There's a couple I've played, right? I, I, You know, I've tried Star Realms and I've played that a bunch. And I've played uh, Tsura online also. Um, but that's about it. Other games I've tried just hasn't stuck for me. Mm. Yeah, I've tried I tried Pandemic very briefly. I tried Sentinels of the Multiverse. Didn't enjoy it. Um, I, I know I've tried more. Carcassonne, Catan. Eh. Age of, or not Age of Steam. Steam is another one I've played online. I've played that somewhat. That one's okay, actually. Okay. Um, what pr- are you talking about putting it on like Board Game Arena or something like that, or no, somewhere else? I'm I'm just talking in general, like on a, as an app. Actually, I've played. Oh. I've also played stuff on like um, on Yucata. Yeah, Yucata. I I, I, I usually prefer doing something in Yucata or somewhere like that, okay. or an app. Than something like Tabletop Simulator. I'd really rather have the rules be enforced. It's so much easier to work with and do. Mm-hmm. But even then, you know, most games I'd rather play physical than use an app. I use the apps because, you know, easier. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've done it to play with with uh, with folks that just aren't in the same location. Yeah, Mainly for that, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and I'm continuing to keep up with my plays. Oh yeah, cool. How's that going? Continue to keep it logged. Yep. Are you finding it at all challenging at all, or not really? I'm not finding it challenging. Um, I find it good because, you know, I, I've talked about the benefits before. You know, it helps remember people's names, remember what games I've played, things like that. Mm-hmm. I, I wish there were some better stats for, like, tracking, you know, scores and things like that. Like, to see, oh, I got this score and this time this. There's nothing that'll, like, show me my score over time and like, say, Feast of Odin or something like that. That would be nice. You know, I think, doesn't the app show you stuff like that? It'll give you statistics? How? The BGG app? I don't remember, but I know it had some sort the of The Android BGG stuff. app? Yeah. I don't know what kind of statistics it has exactly, but it has some. Did, did, I, did I tell you about when I scored 24 points in Feast for Odin? No? Is that good? Yes. No, that's really horrible. A good oh. score is beating 100, or what you're trying to aim for, I think, is, is beating 100. And I was writing it down on a sheet of paper, and so when I played multiplayer the next time... So someone looks over at past games I've played and says, wait, you scored 24 points? I'm like, well, I was playing it while my kids were taking a nap. <laughs> then my kids woke up, so I rushed the last two rounds. And I was basically just like rushing decisions. I wasn't really thinking about it. And then I totaled up and I got like 24 points. And I was like, oh God, that's a really horrible score. <laughs> and yeah, that's what happened. It was like, that's a really horrible score. <laughs> like, yeah, it is. 24 <laughs> is a really bad score. Ah, uh, so that's the problem with writing them all down. Have you... Uh, I heard there's an expansion or two more out for uh, Arkham Horror, the card game. Have you got any of them? I know there's a box and a, also another scenario, I think. Well, there's two print-on-demands that have come out so far. There's the Curse of the Rougarou mm-hmm. that's come out, that came out a while ago. It was released in Arkham Knights. There is... Um, there is... The Carnival one. Yeah, okay. And then the one that just got released just last week is the Dunwich Legacy, which is the new deluxe one. The other two are printed demands. This is a deluxe one because it mm-hmm. comes with new player cards and two new scenarios. Okay. Two scenarios. Yes, it has two scenarios, which can actually be played in either order. Oh, okay. So are they standalone scenarios then? They are, well, you need the core box to play it. They are standalone. What do you mean by standalone scenarios? I don't know. You I need mean, the I guess, core box to play it. I guess I'm confused because you can play them in any order. Like with the Lord of the Rings game, the box brings three scenarios and you, you play them in order. There's a story behind them. The core box is in order. Yes, the core box is three in order. But just like in Lord of the Rings, there's a deluxe followed by a bunch of packs. Mm-hmm. But the deluxe will have three scenarios and you play them in order in, in, the, this, in those... This deluxe has two, and you can play it in either order. Neat. Okay. They're trying to. They're definitely changing things up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That is cool. Okay. Uh, have, the game is certainly its it? own beast. Uh, I have not tried it. Not yet. Have you opened it? I have opened it. I've opened okay. it. I've sleeved the cards. I've sorted it all out by set icons, but I haven't played it yet. Huh, okay. Well, neat. Sad. Mm-hmm. But I did take the time to talk to the designer about it. Oh, really? Yes. When did you meet him? I met with him last week. Would you like to hear it? Yes, please. Here we go.
All right, I'm here with Matt Newman, the current lead designer of the Arkham Heart card game. Hi, Matt. How are you doing today? Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It's great to be here. It's my pleasure. I know that the, the card game is getting a lot of buzz recently. A lot of people are really enjoying <laughs> the game. Yeah, it's it's been really exciting to see the reception. Have a lot of people been contacting you about it? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot, I get uh, rules questions every day, um, <laughs> which is great, actually, because it's good to see people kind of getting in-depth and learning about the game. Um, but just the reception on like BoardGameGeek and online has been overwhelming. And I don't know if you also followed. Are you familiar with the One Player Guild? I don't know if you are. Uh, no, I'm not. But every year we do mm-hmm. a One Player Choice um, where everyone votes on their favorite uh, solo games for the year. And the Arkham Horror game actually ranked really high. I think it got up to the 32nd place for solo nice. games. Which, oh, that's so cool. Know, it just came out, so it's definitely getting a lot of buzz with solo gamers. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Mm-hmm. So what exactly was your involvement th- in Arkham Horror? Did you do all of it, just part of it? Uh, so it was me and uh, Nate French doing the, the core design for the core set. Um, and we kind of took... Uh, we were kind of working together on it from the ground up, but we took kind of different roles because it was always planned that I was going to be the lead developer for all of the expansions. Um, so me and Nate uh, kind of worked on the core, like, funda- like uh, fundamentals of the game, the foundations for the game. Um, but with the knowledge from the ground up that I would be uh, taking on that, that lead hat from him afterwards. Does he have any involvement anymore, or is it just you? Uh, he does in a sort of advisory capacity. So when I have questions or I'm not sure what to do on you know a certain scenario or a card effect, I'll I'll come to him, and he does he does take a look at all of the cards at the beginning and all the cards at the end of the production of any given um, expansion. But for the most part, uh, from now on, it's basically me. Do you ever envision having anyone else getting involved, or do you think it's just going to be you until you know the game stops? <laughs> well, if it was up to me, it'd be that. But uh, I can never really uh, know what what the future holds. Um, generally speaking, at FFG, we have a really uh, great uh, work environment where we can kind of dictate—not dictate, but um, if we say like, "Oh, I want to work on this," and nobody has any, you know. Uh, anything's against that then they they're totally fine with that so um i'd be happy to keep working on this game you know by myself <laughs> so this is something you're really loving doing that's what i'm hearing yeah yes absolutely absolutely and uh i know uh it's pretty common for us to swap designers every now and then so i wouldn't say it's outside the realm of possibility that that could happen at some point but if it did that would not necessarily be a bad thing because different designers have their own takes and they do all, they each do different things with the game. And sometimes that can be really healthy. Mm-hmm. And did you have any past projects at FFG or somewhere else? Yeah. So I've been working at fantasy flight games, uh, for a little over four years now. I started in December, 2012. And when I was hired, it was me and Caleb Grace working on the Lord of the Rings card game. Um, so up until Arkham, I pretty much was working on the Lord of the Rings, the card game, full-time. Um, lots of different expansions for that. Um, Caleb was working on, if you're familiar with it, those uh, saga expansions that follow the plot of the Lord of the Rings uh, books. 
Sure. And those are what Caleb was working on. And I was working on, uh, I was helping him work on some of the, uh, the cycles around the same time as those saga expansions. So like the Ringmaker cycle. Um, but then after that, I kind of took over some of the cycles and then Arkham happened. And so now Caleb is pretty much working on the Lord of the Rings, the card game full time. And I'm still kind of there helping him with that. But for the most part, I'm working on Arkham. Do you ever think you're going to go back to working on Lord of the Rings? Um, like I said, you never know. I am still technically working on the Lord of the Rings because I'm working on... Uh, we, we have a lot of different pro- uh, products for the Lord of the Rings kind of happening simultaneously. So one of the one of the series that I work on is called uh, Nightmare Decks. And they're sort of like uh, print-on-demand products that you can buy to add additional difficulty and variance to some of the older scenarios that have been out for several years now. Um, so I'm still working on those for the Lord of the Rings. Uh, in fact, I think... The most recent pack of Nightmare decks released a f- couple months ago. Um, um, but yeah, so for the future, who knows? <laughs> so how did you transfer over from Lord of the Rings to Arkham? Um, it was kind of... Uh, uh, I guess the, the easiest way to explain it is we always kind of knew that we were going to do another cooperative LCG. And the decision was made that it was going to be in uh, the Arkham IP. And from there, they pretty much said, hey, Matt, do you want to work on the Arkham card game? And I said, absolutely, yes, immediately. When do I start? Um, And that was pretty much how it started. Like, that's not even a question. Yeah, I mean, it's... (laughs) uh, And Nate... uh, I would say has a hand in pretty much every uh, he's our senior LCG designer. He's kind of been involved in almost every LCG we've ever made in the department. Um, so they, they kind of put me and him on it as a sort of tag team. And it worked out really well. Just to help you get more experience or just to, for what reason? Um, a, a lot of different reasons. I mean, he's been, he's been in the industry for a long time, so he kind of knows um, the ins and outs of it. So it was kind of like a mentor apprentice relationship, like a, you know, Sith thing. <laughs> <laughs> like a Sith. <laughs> All right. Well, you're the one that compared FFG's apprentice relationships to the evil overlords <laughs> of the Star Wars. Universe. Right. Yeah. No, that was, that was me, not you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So were you already like invested in the Arkham lore beforehand? Did, you know, did you read all the books, play all the games? I mean, what was your level of experience in Arkham before you got involved in the game? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was pretty high. Um, I think my first uh, brush with the the lore of the Cthulhu mythos was reading some of the early, um, early on, uh, kind of like in high school, reading some of the works of H.P. Lovecraft. But I didn't really start getting into it until I actually played the um, Fantasy Flight's uh, Arkham Horror, the board game. The, the third edition, the, the edition that's out right now. Um, and I played that game... I, like, I played that game to death. I played, I loved that game. That game was one of my introductions into board gaming. Um, and I really loved the feel of it. I loved kind of taking the role of a character and running around and having these experiences. And, um, and then, of course, um, several of the other games in our Arkham Files catalog came out. So there's Elder Sign, there's Eldritch Horror. And uh, then around that time, I started getting really into 
the books, um, and not just the works of H.P. Lovecraft, but a lot of the other books in the same mythos. So, you know, like August Erleth, Robert Chambers, etc. Um, so I, w- I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a super expert, know everything about the lore kind of person, but I'm definitely really invested and really into it. You are a ton more invested than me. Way more invested <laughs> than me. It sounds like you enjoyed it a lot even before you started the, the start of the game design. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I've kind of been engrossed in the lore of the, the Arkham Files universe for a long time. So are there any other games that you've played before or any other favorite standouts? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been a hardcore gamer since I was... Uh, forever i mean it's since before i can even remember i my dad is um uh, actually a board game designer of some renown um al newman he's worked on a bunch of cool games and so growing up i was kind of always in uh involved in the industry and um he taught me a lot of board games when i was young and so i've always kind of been involved and i play a lot of video games too um so, I mean, listing them out here would <laughs> probably take longer than you have. But and, uh, any favorites? Favorites? Um, I mean, the Fantasy Flight Games catalog is my favorites. I love all of the games that we make at Fantasy Flight, and it's one of the reasons why I I joined with them. Their their games are always such high quality, and they're always so thematic, and I just love them. I still remember walking into a Walden Books when I was in. I'm not exactly sure how old I was, but I was a teenager and seeing Twilight Imperium uh, third edition there in its huge, gigantic tombstone box and just begging my dad to buy it because it just looked so cool. (laughs) Before you said, before you got involved in the company, I was going to say, okay, you have to exclude games that you actually were involved in. That's not allowed. Oh, well, I mean, did clarify. Yeah. Yeah. And do you ever play any games solo? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, it's hard to find the time. Um, a lot of time, it's it's kind of one of those things where if I had the time, I would do it a lot more often than I do. Um, but there are definitely games that I, that I play solo. Lord of the Rings was one uh, for me for a long time that I played that solo a lot. Um, Descent, now that we have that Road to Legend app, that's a really fun game to play solo. Um Warhammer Quests by the Sadler Brothers. That's a cool solo game. All right, you're definitely doing a good job hitting all the FFG games. <laughs> Again, not not intentional. It's not like a marketing <laughs> ploy. I just really love the games that we make. <laughs> I understand that. Did you play solo a lot when you were developing Arkham? Um, like, did I play Arkham solo a lot? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I would say the sweet spot for playtesting is probably two players because it's pretty easy to get a two-player group together. Um, but one of the one of the really cool things about Arkham, and also Lord of the Rings uh, to an extent, is that when I'm at work, I can just sit at my desk and play, and play test. And that gives me a lot of um, sort of internal, in-my-head feedback that helps me design the quest and redesign cards. So um, I do that, I would say, at least 30 minutes to an hour of every day that I'm at work unless I'm, you know, really busy. Do you play also with the release stuff or just the new stuff that you're testing? Well, generally speaking, the 
the stuff that I'm testing is is what I have on my plate at any given moment. But we definitely test everything solo uh, pretty extensively, as well as uh, three and four player as well. And so you had designed it really to fit in playing solo. Yeah, yeah. We knew from Lord of the Rings that there's a, a pretty decent percentage, uh, like an almost surprising uh, percentage of people who, who like to play solo. Um, so we, we knew from right from the beginning that we wanted to make this game with that in mind um, to suit pretty much any number of players between one and four equally well. Um, and while, of course, there are a lot of challenges there in... You know, there's always going to be balanced challenges and also challenges in terms of designing new cards to to suit that. But I think we, I feel like we did a pretty good job of of making the game work in in any player count. Uh, even though it feels different, it feels it feels good. You know. And when you say play solo, I assume you mean play with one investigator or play with two investigators, just control both. No, with with one investigator, with one deck. Yeah. And. You know, I, I feel like we haven't really described what Arkham Horror is uh, <laughs> for anyone who isn't familiar with the design. But perhaps before we focus more about the development of it, do you want to just describe what Arkham Horror is and what an LCG is? Yeah, of course. Uh, definitely. So um, as far as LCGs go, um, for anyone who's not familiar with the term, it means living card game. And uh, it's sort of an extension um, or an evolution of uh, the CCG, which is a collectible card game. So the idea is we take the randomness out of the collectible card game. So every time you buy a pack of cards, um, you know exactly what's going to be in that pack. It's not randomly distributed. And everyone, so everyone uh, provided everybody's, you know, keeping up to date and buying the new packs as they come out, everyone has the same card pool. So everyone's kind of experiencing things on the same level, and you don't have to go chasing certain cards and that kind of thing. So that's kind of where the idea of living card games came from. Um, but for the longest time, it was it was always about competitive games. So you'd buy a new pack of cards with some new cards in it, and you'd, you'd make a new deck, and so would your opponents, and you'd go to a tournament and you'd play together, or you'd play casually at the kitchen table, that kind of thing. Um, but then Lord of the Rings kind of changed things up by making it a fully cooperative living card game so every pack that you pick up in addition to having some new player cards with which you can build a new deck or tweak your deck it has a new scenario for you to play so it's almost like every pack that you buy is like its own little game um and that that theory uh is the same in arkham as well uh, but with the additional bonus that each pack is a chapter in an overarching story so it's, it's almost like a serialized narrative, like a TV show, where every month you're going to get this new pack, and it's the new chapter of a story, and you're excited to see how the story is going to play out. And then in addition to that, there's some exciting new cards, and it's just a lot of fun. Um, so as that's, that's pretty much the LCG in a nutshell. Uh, as far as the theme, it's Arkham Horror. So you're in the, the town of Arkham in Massachusetts, where basically... Everything's always bad, and there are monsters and great old ones lurking in the shadows, and there's cults uh, working to bring these ancient ones to life, and uh, mysteries abound, and your investigators trying to solve these mysteries and, um, well, survive. <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, that's pretty much Arkham Horror in a nutshell. So with those packs... Is that yeah. basically like designing an expansion for a regular game, or is there a different 
design idea when you're designing an expansion versus designing a mythos pack? Um, like as compared to competitive games? As compared to like if you were designing an expansion for Pandemic, let's say. And I'm, I, sure. I understand that you didn't do that. But designing <laughs> an expansion for something like a Pandemic versus designing the expansion for something like Arkham Horror Card Game. Is it right. a different design process because you have to work in those restrictions or work in that different idea and understanding? Or is it just basically like designing an expansion? Um, I'd say there's definitely a big difference. And I think that that major difference is the narrative. Because um, designing an expansion for a, a game typically is, okay, we have this game. These mechanics are cool. Everyone's having a lot of fun. What can we do to really push what we have into, to a new level and explore themes that we didn't explore before, maybe come up with some new mechanics and have a lot of cards revolving around that. Um, for a board game, a lot of times that's like, let's have a new map or let's have a new board or new pieces. Um, for Arkham, the big challenge and the, the big reason why designing it is different is in addition to do because we're also doing that, but we're also trying to fit all of these expansions together as a story. Um, and so, as a story in like the choose your own adventure uh, novel style, where there's many many different endings and different routes that you can take throughout the story, um, so it's not enough to just come up with a new theme or a new mechanic. We also have to kind of come up with a new uh, narrative hook for every pack and a narrative hook for the campaign as a whole, which can be pretty challenging. Was that harder or easier? Because when you're working in Lord of the Rings there's already a story and you're almost tied to that story. You're tied to the original yeah. narrative with Arkham. You guys get, you know, whatever it is comes to you, whatever new narrative you want to envision, you know, mm -hmm. for instance, like putting a werewolf story into Arkham, <laughs> right. Uh, which is the curse of the Ruguru expansion that recently was released or um, print on demand pack that was recently released. Yeah. You know, did that, was that more freeing? Was that easier? How did that change your design? Uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. So actually, it's funny bringing up Lord of the Rings because Lord of the Rings had sort of two different lines of expansions. Um, there were the saga expansions that followed the books closely. And then the cycles sort of were set in the same universe, but they follow their own kind of story. Um, so it's more similar to, to the Lord of the Rings cycles than, um, than one might suspect. But having the freedom to kind of do the stories that we want to do and use our creativity is uh, really helpful. But overall, it's it's definitely challenging. Um, it's not as simple as putting together a, a pack of cards, uh, like a cycle of cards, and distributing them into six packs. We have to also kind of fit that narrative in and make it interesting and fun to read as well. Do you enjoy writing your own stories, or do you enjoy more pulling in those other stories? Which one of those was a bigger you know, fulfillment for you? I, I definitely enjoy writing the stories. That's a lot of fun for me. I, I actually, I also kind of come from a creative writing background, so that's really, it's really cool for me to be able to use those skills and my design skills together at the same time. That's one of the things that I think drew me to Arkham as a game. What were the, <laughs> what were the biggest challenges for you in, in designing Arkham Horror? Um, I definitely, I think that the narrative, um, the, uh, I think this is something that will be seen a lot more in that first cycle, uh, the Dumbwich Legacy cycle. Um, the core set, uh, being only three scenarios, there's sort of a 
kind of a hard cap on what kind of crazy stuff we can do. And um, we have a lot of freedom and room in the cycles to do some pretty intricate stories. The design overall, I think there's there's always going to be challenges and there's a lot of challenges that come from different directions. For for me, I think the biggest challenge is uh, kind of when we're working on a campaign from the from the start, we have to we have to work on the narrative uh, from the beginning and kind of know where the plot's going to go. Because um, we work on the whole cycle together, the box and the, the six packs following it all together at the same time, and then kind of distribute it from there. Um, so we kind of have to plan really, really far ahead. So like if we're working for a new campaign or working on a new campaign, we're basically working seven products ahead uh, and mapping out the story exactly kind of where we want to go and what we want to do before we ever even design one card. Um, and, and even to the extent of ordering art as well. Um, and then from there we can design the cards, but we're, we're kind of like hemmed in, in a way. Um, not in a bad way, but that's, it's definitely a challenge. Like we need to make sure that we're staying true to our vision when we're designing the cards. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I, th- I believe there's a lot of reused art in the Arkham Horror games. Yeah. <sighs> We have a decent amount of art that we can pull from other games, but we also try to stick to a ratio of about, I think the ratio is like 60% new art, 40% old art. Uh-huh. Um, it's not it's not a hard and fast rule, but we like to have a lot of new art featured in the game as well. Okay. Um, so I think if you look at the core sets, it's probably closer to about 50-50 in the core set, maybe 55-45. Uh, but I think when we get into the new products and the, the expansions, there'll be a lot more new art. As well. I, I think it's almost it stands out more to me about the old art just because I can go, oh hey, I know that one. That's from this one. It's sort of like a discovery. <laughs> yeah, I remember this card. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. There, there are some cards too that are uh, kind of named or themed after the the cards that that the art is uh, used from as an as an homage mm-hmm. to uh, like for example the Call of Cthulhu uh, living card game. Mm-hmm. But you were talking how you have to design the whole pack at once. Does that mean that if, you know, Dunwich, which is coming out very soon, or mm-hmm. by the time this drops, will have already been out, if someone yeah. realizes there's a giant issue, there's nothing you can do to fix that? It's already at the publisher at this point? Well, it kind of depends on exactly when in the timeline uh, said issue comes up. Um, there's definitely... We do have the freedom to do some creative problem solving when that kind of thing happens. It takes a long time for a lot of, like, the working on the project is there's a lot of moving parts and making last minute adjustments creates delays. Like, that's how, that's one of the ways that delays happen. Um, so if we're, if we know that we're going to be going through a certain area, like Dunwich, for example, um, and then, you know, at the last minute, uh, I decide, oh, we can't, we can't do that. We have to go over here. It's like it's kind of too late, you know what I mean? Um, to steer that ship away. <laughs> um, so we, we, I guess, what I'm saying is, we have to plan really far ahead, and then uh, strategize and stick to that strategy, you know. But something like a small tweak for like a rule that ends up broken or something like that, you guys can sort of fix that if something like that occurs. It kind of depends on on what the tweak is. I mean, obviously there's reprints, so if there's like a big problem with a card, we can change it in a reprint and issue an errata for a card. But we try we try our best not to do that because we like people to, you know, open the product, have the cards, and that's kind of the end. Like that's like 
they get the card and that's that's the card we're not gonna like go changing it on them at the last minute um and obviously there are mistakes that that get changed when that happens every now and then but for the most part we try to stay away from errata when we can was there ever any idea to include any competitive aspects in arkham horror um no it was pretty much designed from the ground up with only cooperative in mind um that was kind of one of the uh one of the goals from the from the beginning, we we never really planned on doing anything competitive with uh, with Arkham, and part of that is I think to really nail down that theme of you know we are only humans uh, facing down this almost unfathomable uh, entity uh, or entities of the mythos like you can't make any sense of it you know um, so having someone control that kind of uh, I think would would lessen the tension a little bit and the theme of Arkham Horror. Was there any idea to include any competition between groups? Like I know with Pandemic Legacy, for me, mm-hmm. you know, it was a surprise to have the scorecard at the very end. <laughs> was there any idea to have that involved too? Well, I think uh, players will find their own ways to earn bragging rights amongst themselves, and there's definitely ways to do that in the game. Um, like, for example, the experience points. You know, how, how much experience did you end the campaign with? Oh, I had 16. Oh, I only had 14. Well, you win. Um, but that's not really what it's designed to do. Um, I think when it comes to keeping track of score or having players compete amongst one another, I think the best way to do that is just like, look at the story and how did how did the story resolve for you oh we saved the world oh well we all went insane you know so clearly (laughs) you did better in the story than we did (laughs) well with those win-loss ideas Mm -hmm. was that always an idea that you wanted to have to not really have free-flowing win-loss conditions as opposed to like you win or you lose um i think I wouldn't say it was part of the core idea from the very beginning, but me and Nate were both really inspired by the choose your own adventure novels that we both read growing up. Um, So that's kind of where the idea came from. And I don't remember exactly how it popped up, but I think I had a conversation with Nate where I basically said, Hey, it'd be really cool if, you know, at the end of the scenario, it didn't say you win or you lose. It just says, this is what happened. Um, move on to the next scenario, regardless of what happened. And uh, and he thought that was really cool. Um, I, I mean, I might be misquoting that. It might have been him that came up with the idea and me saying, I honestly, it kind of just evolved. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> it just kind of made sense, you know? Is there, when you're playing the game, any aspect of a win-loss? Or is it always just, to you, a choice in the story? Uh, I think, I mean, there's definitely an element of win loss in that if your investigator is defeated, you're eliminated from the game and then you're kind of out for the rest of the scenario. And that I think uh, generally speaking feels like a loss. Um, But what we wanted to do is make sure that that wasn't the end right there, that you could still move on to the next scenario um, regardless of, even if your investigator is completely killed, you can still move on to the next scenario. Just pick a new investigator um, because I think that, that really hammers down that, that narrative and campaign feel um, as opposed to say in certain cooperative games or maybe in video games where you're, you just kind of keep beating your head against it until you break through the wall and succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and there have been other games that have done that before in the past. And I th- like, uh, for example, Warhammer the Adventure, uh, Warhammer Quest, the adventure card game, um, does that I think really well as well. And uh, we were both inspired by by those games. How difficult did you intend the game to be to beat then? Um, I think we intended it to be pretty difficult overall because it is Arkham, and the Arkham Files games are known uh, almost notorious for being difficult. Um, and kind of they should be, right? Because of the theme of, of the game. And, you know, we are just humans doing, you know, investigating the impossible and that kind of thing. Um, and also as a cooperative game, it needs to have a level of difficulty that makes you keep coming back to it and wanting to do better. If you beat it like perfectly on the first try, then you're kind of like, oh, well, all right, I'm done. Um, but we also wanted to make sure that there's sort of a, a version of Arkham Horror, the card game, for everybody. So that's why there's the four difficulty levels that are included right in the box, so that if you just want to kind of explore the narrative and do some do some fun deck building, but um, you kind of want to have a really good chance at, at success, you can play on easy. Um, or if you want to play, like, story kind of thematic uh, decks, you can play on easy. And then standard gives you this sort of... Um, the normal sense of tension that we kind of designed the game around and then hard is just harder and you know more punishing and rewards tactical play a lot more than easy and standard and then expert is just uh yeah <laughs> good luck have you, have you ever beat it on expert yeah yeah actually we, we we played through we play tested all four difficulty modes um with different groups mind you but uh myself and a group of uh, three play testers in four player did play through the entire core set on expert mode and survived and with won. just the core box stuff. Yep. With just the core box stuff. There you go. Yeah. So it, you've heard it here first folks. It is beatable <laughs> on expert. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll believe that someday. <laughs> I actually haven't even tried it on expert yet. We've, uh, we're still gearing up for our run on hard before Dunwich comes out personally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Expert is pretty punishing. I mean, the big thing, the difference between the, the difficulty modes, if anyone, if any listener doesn't know, is uh, it adjusts the tokens that are in the chaos bag that you pull for every skill check that you make. So it basically just makes everything harder to do. Um, and for expert specifically, it's it's kind of a um, it's kind of a wild card because there there are tokens in there that are so high that you can't really bank on. Like in standard, the highest one in there is negative four, right? So if you mm-hmm. If you pump your skill checks up to the point where you're winning by four, the only thing in there that's going to make you fail is the automatic failure token. Um, but on expert, you just you can't guarantee that. <laughs> There's just always a chance that you're going to succeed. Um, but what's cool about that is it su- it supplies a lot of tension for every every ch- uh, check that you make. I'm surprised there weren't more auto fills in the bag in that case on expert. <laughs> no, I think I mean at that point a negative eight is so high that. It's, you know, by proxy, almost an auto fail, mm-hmm. um, but it's at least a number so you can beat it. <laughs> and I think also the uh, special tokens, there's a number of special tokens in the chaos bag, which instead of having dice or cards or something like that, the, be the randomest of the game, you pull bag tokens out of the bag and there's some special icons also. And I think the um, translation for the special icons is also changed for the hard and expert modes too. Yeah, definitely. Actually, the bag isn't that much different between standard and hard. It's a little bit harder. It's mainly that when you flip that card over and you see the effects on those special tokens change, 
that makes a huge impact mm-hmm. for sure. And that's very different than the method of making it harder in Lord of the Rings, where you guys had those nightmare cards. Do right. you, did you prefer having it be more like just changing the bag? Do you prefer the method you did for Lord of the Rings? I mean, there's pros and cons to both. Um, the cool thing about it being right in the box is you have it already. You know, you didn't have to wait two, three years for some supplemental product that you then bought to alter the difficulty. But what's awesome about the Nightmare decks is we can revisit scenarios that we haven't seen or that you haven't played in years and uh, sort of bring back that, that feeling of nostalgia of playing those scenarios for the very first time and play with the themes of those scenarios in new and unique ways and kind of flip them on their head and do stuff like that. So I think, honestly, both have a lot of merit. And it's just a, a different feel. But for, for Arkham, when we were working on the Chaos Bag, it kind of just fits so well um, that it was there was never any question that that's what we were going to do. We kind of said, hey, we have this bag of tokens that you're drawing out of to you know, see whether you succeed or fail. What should be in that bag? You know, how hard should it be? And our response was kind of depends on you as a player. Do you want it to be really hard? Do you want it to be really easy? You know, put, and and of course, um, even though it it lists out exactly what tokens to put in there for different difficulty modes, you can change that. I mean, it's a cooperative game. So if you want to play it with your own custom difficulty mode, that's absolutely like a thing that you can do too. So it gives a lot of control to the players and lets them kind of play the game the way they want to. Mm Mm-hmm. Did you have any other major goals when you were designing Arkham Horror? Um, I think, yeah. I mean, our, our, I think our major goal right from the beginning and overall is to kind of put you into the shoes of the character that you're playing. Um, I think in a lot of games, it's uh, you're controlling like a faction or a group of people or an organization or a species. Um And there are definitely games where you're controlling one person, but we wanted to make it feel like not only are you controlling one person, but like you are that person. Um, Everything that's happening to your investigator is happening to you. Everything that you play is kind of from the point of view of your character. And it's just, um, we wanted the the story to be an experience um, almost on a meta level that's, it's happening to you as well as it's happening to your character and your investigator. And did you guys feel like you really nailed that? Do you feel like there's anywhere that fell short? Do you feel like there's anywhere you really succeeded in that? Um, I feel like we we took a lot of steps to to make that shine, and I think a lot of people have appreciated those steps. Things like the the slots on the assets where you can only have you only have two hands, so you can only carry two objects. Um, things like um, even right down to the art direction of a lot of the cards sort of being from the perspective of, of you as an investigator. Um, and so personally, I feel like we did uh, nail it, but obviously that's, <laughs> that's up to you guys. <laughs> the LCG, you know, as designed, it's intended to be, or at the very least it's, it's published as something that you can continue collecting. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned a couple of times with Arkham horror or excuse me with the Warhammer quest, that's not one you can continue collecting, especially since, mm-hmm. unfortunately, Fantasy Flight lost the license for that. Mm-hmm. Was Arkham Horror designed as something that is really meant to be enjoyed only as part of a collection, or even enjoyed only by itself as a core box? 
Um, that's a good question, actually. So my answer to that is going to be a more broad answer, but it applies to Arkham Horror as well. Um, anytime we do an LCG core set, we 100% intend for it to be uh, enjoyable as a standalone product and also enjoyable as part of someone's greater collection. Um, so take, for example, you know, the Netrunner core set or the Game of Thrones second edition core set. We, we've, we take a lot, we kind of painstakingly make sure that the cards in that core set are enjoyable. If, even if that's the only product you're ever going to buy, um, because it's, it's not just an entry point, but it's also, it's a self-contained box in and of itself. Um, so for Arkham, that's the reason why the, the campaign in the core set for Arkham has a beginning and an end. It's not part of a greater campaign. It's only three scenarios because we wanted that campaign to stand alone by itself and be an enjoyable experience right out of the box. Um, but we also want the cards in that core set, the player cards uh, specifically, but also the encounter sets in the core set as well to have a greater uh, part if you're planning on building your collection and really getting the, the deep dig into deck building and that sort of thing. Have you ever yourself done any of this collecting, like collecting an LCG or a magic set or, I don't know, stamp collection? <laughs> uh, definitely. I mean, not not the stamp thing, but uh, <laughs> LCGs for sure. I, I played a lot of collectible card games in my day, and uh, when the LCG model started to really take off, I played pretty much all of the LCGs that we have in our catalog before I even got hired at FFG. Um, so I collected Game of Thrones, Call of Cthulhu card game, um, Warhammer Invasion, which was a great game. Um, I collected a lot of those card games before I even got hired. And then once I got hired, I just <laughs> basically bought all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Did, and of course, any, Lord of the Rings. Was there any favorite experience you had while you were designing it? Was there anything that just, you know, you feel like it was a great turning point or some part of it you really enjoyed? Um, yeah, I think so early on, we, we had a lot of kind of early prototypes and I can't talk about the prototypes too much because, uh, the game kind of changed dramatically from prototype to prototype as games often do. But, uh, there was a moment where I was playing with, um, with someone in the company and they were uh we were getting to the end of that first scenario and that first scenario was pretty similar to the the version that you see in the core set now um and i don't want to spoil anything in in that first scenario for anyone who hasn't played it yet but there's, there's a decision that you make at the end of that first scenario and i'm sure you know <laughs> the decision that i'm talking about um and i'm playing with uh uh someone in the company who's making this decision based off of not their their like personal morals or what they think would tactically be best but what their character would do um and they were playing as skids um so they were making that decision based off how skids acts and how skids uh how his personality is and that floored me the first time um that i saw that happen i was i was like this is working this is working as a, as a, as a role-playing experience. People are getting into the role of the character that they're playing. And that was like a huge moment for me because it meant that we were on the right track. Very cool. So definitely the role-playing aspect is like the biggest type thing that you really enjoy seeing. Oh yeah. I mean the role-playing and the, the narrative and like having people kind of, um, one of my favorite things to do as a designer is to keep people on their toes 
and not know what to expect. And I love watching people's reactions to things when, you know, they flip a card and they say, oh, wait, what? That's not what I expected to be on the other <laughs> side of this card or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, I think players should expect uh, a lot more of that to come as well because that's even think of exactly what you're thinking of when you (laughs) say that yeah i'm sure you can too that's um (laughs) that was that was my touch right there (laughs) and that that worked for me i will say that awesome awesome i'm really glad (laughs) all right well i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us did you have any other last messages anything else you want to throw in no i mean um I guess I should say the uh, the Dunwich Legacy. If it's not out by the time you're listening to this, it should be out, you know, any day now. Um, really excited for that expansion. Okay, yeah, perfect. Then it, it will be out by the time you're listening to this. Uh, if you haven't gotten it yet, go get it. That expansion is awesome. I had a lot of fun designing it, and uh, it's ju- there's just going to be a lot more to come. So uh, keep on keep an eye on the Fantasy Flight website. Very cool. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing more surprises. I mean, there's already two print-on-demand expansions that have come out, both of which were huge surprises for me to see out there. I mean, the Carnival one had almost yeah. no foreknowledge <laughs> or an, an ounces other than just simply saying, hey, it's here, go get it. Yeah, hey, did you want a new scenario immediately right now, this very moment? Exactly. Here you go. <laughs> exactly. So definitely yeah. like those surprises. I'm looking really forward to see what else is coming out of the system. I, I expect to stay with it for quite a while. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. Nice. I didn't know we had an interview with him. We did. I mean, was I supposed to know? That's cool. Yes, I emailed you about it. Okay. I forget things. And here I thought you were just setting me up for that. I was not. I was really surprised. <laughs> And it was a good time talking with Matt. I really appreciated him, uh, you know, coming on and talking to us about the game. Yeah, this is excellent. Excellent stuff. And I know usually we try and sync our interviews with full reviews of the game. I know Matt, you know, says that the core box is a perfectly fine game in of itself. My personal opinion so far is that if you're not willing to go in on the, the continued experience, the game is designed to have that continued experience it's going to be released with that continued experience if you want a one box and done experience you may as well look for something else that doesn't have all that other stuff so my personal opinion is you can't really get the full flavor of it until your couple packs in so i'm not going to be reviewing it until at least the first mythos pack is released Hmm. Okay. So for at least another month, I'm not going to be reviewing it. So that's why usually we do have a sync between reviews and interviews, and it's not happening this time. Yeah, but we will definitely get to the game. But instead, we maybe have a different game to talk about? Well, the, then let's talk about today's game, which is The Bloody Inn. Um, now, this is a game that came out in 2015, late 2015, but I think it wasn't quite available for a while. It was a little hard to find. It was published by Pearl Games and is um, designed by Nicholas Robert. And the art is by Weberson Santiago and the graphic design is by Luis Francisco. And I think it's worth mentioning those names because because the game looks great. And it's worth knowing who did the art, I think. Um, is it? I think it's only worth knowing who did the art if they've done other pieces. I hope they have or I hope they'll do more and then you know keep an ear out for them. I, at least I want to mention their names just to give them credit for it. I suppose. Hmm. Weberson Santiago has maybe done quite a number of things. He's uh, works for 
Marvel, DC Comics, Rolling Stone. He also has some <laughs> in Coup. Okay. Yeah, I believe that. There's a like a Brazil edition. I bet you he did that one. Luis Francisco did maybe Bullfrogs? Huh. No, he didn't do Bullfrogs. Somebody else did Bullfrogs. Well, he so did a gra- He does graphic design. So maybe Oh, he did the do. graphic design for Bullfrogs? Maybe. Yeah. Well, so this game is set in France in 1831 in um in the city of Parabelle. The city of the Bloody Inn. Well, yes. And what the thing is, it, it matters. Um, in 1831 in France, there was a couple that was arrested for, for killing people. Apparently, they had been killing their guests and um, and taking their money and whatnot. And, and maybe eating people. There's apparently can, cannibalism. And eating people? Going, yes. And possibly feeding the remains of their guests to the next guest that came along. This is a really messed up theme, sir. This is a true story. Just because it's a true story does not mean I mean I need to have a board game about eating people. And yet it works so well. So this game, you're an, an innkeeper, and your guests are coming into your hotel, and some of them you're killing off and collecting money, and some of them end up helping you, and some of them just move on. Um, fortunately, the art that I mentioned is really it's it, it's it's very um, impressionistic. I think it it does not look very realistic, and it. It looks dark and sort of creepy, but it makes the game feel like a, a dark comedy. You know what it I, reminds me of? Mm-mm. Some of the old Monkey Island games. Really? Okay. Yes. Like, I can't remember which Monkey Island games, but there were certain Monkey Island games that had that sort of hair all over the place, not quite, you know, to real life scale type art. Mm-hmm. It and looks like about an old the- Monkey Island. The LucasArts uh, video games. LucasArts video games. Not the old pixelated one. Uh, uh-huh. Now let me find which one I'm talking about. Just a second. What? That's the one I remember. What, Did the old play- pixelated one? Yeah. That's one. I never played it, but I remember it. I played Grim Fandango those around at the same time. Okay. Oh, such a great game. Grim Fandango is much, much better than Monkey Island. Is it? Okay. It is. It is much, much better than Monkey Island. Uh, Escape from Monkey Island is the... Is the one that I'm okay. thinking of. Oh, it looks very cartoony. I think the art looks different in the game. I mean, yes, this one looks. It's more just, I think, the hairstyle. <laughs> ah, the hairstyle. I don't know because, okay. like, the evil guys look like the. You can't really see the evil guys in just that one picture, but the evil guys in Monkey Island also have that sort of sinister style. I think. Okay, that's funny. That's very funny. Well. So so let's talk about the game. It's a very dark setting, but when you play it it actually doesn't feel so dark. It's it's like it's a dark comedy. So you're saying it's no worse than a movie about murdering everyone and laughing about it. Yes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> if you like. Okay. So you get a board. The board represents the inn and there's spaces around the board where you're gonna play cards and those are the different rooms a guest can stay in. Um and in the middle there's a hallway and the hallway is your score track. How there's big also is the a board? Table, wasn't it? It's small. Um, I'd say it's something like five by ten. Oh, so you're playing cards like off the board itself. Uh, off the board on the edge, yeah. Okay. And the board is really just a scoreboard, and it's got the graphic style of a, an inn for the theme. Okay. Um, so you have 70 cards that represent the guests. You have eight peasant cards, which are everybody's always going to have two cards at the start. And uh, as you spend them, you could buy them back. 
and there's going to be one reference card per player, and the reference card is actually used in the game as an annex. Um, so, the location under which you could bury a guest. So is this a deck builder? You talked about how you have a bunch of peasants. It's a, It's not a deck builder. If anything, I'd say it's a drafting, hand management sort of game, and tableau building. Solo drafting? Yes. Intriguing. Okay. Well, it, and it actually works pretty well. Um, oh, besides that, there's a couple more components. There's keys and uh, counters that you put on the rooms just to mark which rooms are being used and which character, which player owns the rooms. I thought you're putting um, key. I thought you're putting people in there to show it's being used. Well, um, in a, there's eight rooms on the board. In a solo game, four of them get used. One of them belongs to you. The other three belong to the the neutral, non-existent player. Um, and that matters because at the end of a round, any guests that are still in a room, whoever owns that room is going to collect money for the guest. But we're sort of jumping forward. Um, you you have 70 uh, character cards or 70 guest cards in the deck. You're going to sh- shuffle it and discard 20, I think 27 of them face down so you don't see who they are. And those are out of the game in a solo game. The The rest forms your deck of guests. So there's seven D unique guests. Um, mo- not all unique. Oh, there is definitely some repetition. I I don't know how many. Um, the the more valuable guests, there's definitely f- those are unique. Okay. The more common guests, there's a few of them. Um, you're gonna shuffle the cards and then drawing them one at a time. You're gonna place them in one of the four available rooms. Keeping in mind that the room you own. You want that guest to still be there at the end of the round because you're going to collect money for him. So you want to put the ones you don't want there and the others. And it's just a little bit of planning on who you put down and, and, and pushing your luck, hoping that maybe a better card comes and you're going to put it in that spot sort of thing. But you lay out the four cards in the room, and now for that round, you have two actions that you could do. Um, the actions are going to be like things like buy a card buy one of the guests and place them in your hand. This is uh, bribing a guest. They're now an assistant to you, or helper, I guess. Um, you're going to buy that card, and you're going to place it into your hand. You buy cards in this, whether you're buying it to draw into your hand or to build an annex or, or murder a guest, by playing cards from your hand and discarding them. Where are you buying those cards from? From the rooms. Uh-huh. So you, you're bribing one of the guests in the, in the hotel room to now become one of your helpers. Okay. They go into your hand. Another thing you could do is you could build an annex. Building an annex is playing a card from your hand to the table, and now this card gives you a special ability. Um, so the people you're playing from your hand and they're becoming rooms. And they're not becoming. They're called. It's called an annex. Um, I think of it as sort of as an accomplice that you could go to and help you out occasionally. Isn't an annex an addition to a building? Yeah, I don't get the term, honestly. I've always found that confusing. Um, there's two things that playing an annex does. One, it lets you, um, it'll give you an ability, depending on the type of annex. And another thing is, you could bury bodies in an annex. So I guess, you know, this person, now they have a farm somewhere and they'll let you bury a body or two in their farm. Does an annex look like a room or not? Like, I'm, I'm guessing on the back of it, I'm guessing on the back of the cards, it shows a room or something like that. No, you play the annex face up with the character side facing up. Does it show on the bottom of it an extra room? Because I'm maybe looking at a picture of the cards, and it looks like on the bottom it shows the plus room type icon. 
Yes, and on the bottom left corner. And that g- tells you what ability that guy will per- give you or, or that man or woman will give you. Okay, so now then instead an of playing them as a person, you're playing them as a room. Yes. That makes more sense. Remember, first you, first you had to buy them into your hand, and then you played them down as this room that gives you a special ability. Okay. Um, the next thing you could do is you could kill a guest. One of the people in a hotel room, you could kill them, and you take them and you play them in front of you face down. You take them from They're the rooms now dead. in the hotel? Yep. And kill them? And you play them. And, yep, and they're now dead. Congratulations. Um, the next, act, yeah, <laughs> the next action you could do is you could bury a dead person. You take one of these dead people and play them under an annex. Um, once you kill somebody, because you're a person of morals, is when you finally collect. You will not collect the money from the dead person until you've buried them. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and you and you collect your money by raising your score on the track based on their value. Really. You can't take the money until you bury them because you're a person of morals? Yes, that, that's what it says in the book. <laughs> Got it. Like I said, it's a little, it's a bit of a dark comedy. Um, there's two more actions you could do. You could draw peasants from the, the um, inn. When you, when you play cards from your hand, if, you're, if they're peasants, you discard them to the table at the inn. You could always, as an action, draw one or two peasants from that table. Um... What do peasants last, do? There are cards in your hand that you could use then to, to pay for actions. Because remember, every action you take will cost cards from your hands. And I'll explain that in a second. Okay. The The final action you could do is you could choose to pass and then launder money. Um, and that matters because that scoring track only goes up to 40 and you cannot go past that 40 number. The way you go past 40 is by converting the cash that you have on hand, the, the your points in the t- track... To a 10 franc bill. So you convert 10 points to a 10 franc bill, and now you could go higher in the track again. Okay. Right. Okay, so now the, the, I was saying you're buying, anytime you're taking an action with the cards, you're buying the cards by paying from your hand. Every card, every guest has a number on it, and anywhere from zero to three. That is how many cards it costs to buy that guest, or to kill that guest, or to turn them into an annex, whatever it is you're doing with them. Um, so if the, if the card says two, you have to discard two cards from your hand to, to take that guest into your hand. And then another two later to turn him into an annex. Yes, that's right. Um, when you discard the two cards from your hands, if they're regular guests, they go to the discard pile. If they're peasants, they go to the table in the inn. Now there's suits also. So when you're playing cards, um... There's four suits, I think. Four. There's five suits. Um, four of the suits correlate to to four of the actions. There's a, a blue suit for for bribing guests. If you when you pay for the cards, if you play with a card of the matching color for that action, instead of discarding the card, you take it back into your hand. So let's say I'm bribing a guest that costs two, and I play with I pay with one blue card and one other card the blue card will come back into my hand and the other card will go back into the discard. So I effectively cost me one. Uh-huh. Right. And so so you end up wanting to do things like have blue cards in your hand so you could buy other people cheaper or have red cards so you could build annex for cheaper and that sort of thing. It costs There's the also- same color of card to build an annex as to bribe the guest? No, the... No. It, it, the, the, it'll cost the same number of cards, right? It doesn't matter. The the color will give you a discount for that one action. So if I 
if I'm bribing a guest and the guest is blue, will the guest also stay blue when I'm annexing them? Yeah, it yes, but it doesn't. It's uh, I didn't explain it well then. The color of the guest you're trying to bribe doesn't matter. It's the color of the guest already in your hand that matters. So if I want to bribe a guest, whether he's blue, green, or gray or whatever, if I discard blue cards from my hand, I will get to keep those blue cards afterwards. Always blue. Take That's back the blue me. power. That's the blue power is to do ah. that for for bribing. Okay. The red cards let you do that for um for building an annex. Ah. Okay. Okay, and so on. Um, so that's what happens. Each round, you're going to take two actions. So there's four guests, but you could at most bribe or kill or whatever with two of them. Um, it makes it a little tough because you look at them and you say, oh, I really want this guy and this guy and this guy. But you, you know you have to let one of them go. So, so there's some tough choices in there deciding which is, which is the one you, you really want the most right now and which one can you let go. So at the end of the round, a couple things are going to happen. First, you're going to get paid for every guest that's in your room, right? Remember, uh, you always have one room that's your color. Do none of these guests ever get suspicious about the rapidly dwindling number of guests in this hotel and the rapidly increasing number of bloody spots lying around? (laughs) Uh, Apparently not. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I know, it's fine. (laughs) So so you're going to collect money for your guest. If he's if there's still guests in your room, and then you're gonna have to pay one franc for each card in your hand for each person you've bribed, so you Ooh. end up you know you could have a lot of cards including in your hand, peasants. That's gonna cost you money, including peasants. That's gonna cost you money every round. So you say, oh, I want to have three blue, and I want to have three red, and I want to have three black. Well, yes, that'd be great, but you know, and if you have no, if them. you don't have enough money under wealth track for that. They get discarded. So, so if I have three money and five cards, I could keep three and discard the other two, right? And pay the money. Yep. And so once once you've done that, once you've collected your money and spent the other money, you then uh, go ahead and discard all the guests that are still in the inn, and begin a new round by adding four guests again. And you're gonna keep doing this round after round until you go through the whole deck. You know, there's only thirty two cards or so, so it's maybe eight rounds, and they go pretty quick. You're then going to take the, the discard pile, shuffle it up, and go through it one more time. Does it make a difference which room is your room? No. No. There's four. There's eight rooms on the board. You could pick any four, any combination of four, and you can make any one of the four yours. It does not really matter the position. The reason you mark it is some of the annex that you build will give you things like let you turn one of the gray rooms into a green room. So now you have two green rooms. Or there's another one where it gives you the the flip side of the token instead of being a key. It's a little room service picture. It's some food and drink. Um, if if you build the annex that lets you place that on the board, whenever you place a guest in that room, you get money immediately based on his value. So if he's a, a rank three guest, you're going to get three francs for placing him there. What difference does it make whether it's a gray room or a green room? It's The grays are the neutral. The green is yours. Or, you know, what... One of the four colors. Ah, so that's only for a solo, and multiplayer essentially just lets you claim a room. Yeah, and in multiplayer, you still end up using some of the neutral rooms. Cause you end up using more than four in that case. Ah. Like in a, in a four-player game, you use all eight rooms, four are neutral, and each player gets one of the others. Ah, okay, so you can essentially claim a neutral room as yours using those annexes. Mm-hmm, ah, okay. yep, and, and that gives you more money. Okay. Um, so it's in, those annexes are pretty neat, because there's a lot of different abilities. Some... I mentioned those that let you take rooms. There's some that will, for example, re- 
reduce the cost of the guest. So from now on, instead of spending three, you only have to spend two. Um, there's some that let you keep a bribe, one of the cards in your hand for free. You don't have to pay for it. There's a few of the expensive ones that will give you bonus points at the end for every card of a certain color in the deck. In the deck? Mm-hmm. As in not killed? As you killed them, but you never... Well, no, you're right. You didn't kill them. You didn't bribe them. They just left. They're not in your hand. They're not in X. Yes. And so, so as you play the first time through, you're going through and you said, oh, here's a card that gives me bonuses for purple, and here's one that gives me bonuses for green. So from now on, I well, don't want me, to kill purple and green. Well, I'm probably not going to buy both of those right away because it's, you know, it's expensive to buy these cards. I'm going to keep an eye on are there a lot of purple or a lot of the green when I go through the deck the first time. And then the second time it comes up, I know which one of the two I'd rather have. Mm. Right, so 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 you start making plans like that, and and then you know hopefully when he comes up, you've got the right cards in your hand to buy it. You could afford it, and there aren't three other things you want to do. Um, so I find it's a really fun game. It's a hard game too. There's there's a lot of tough choices to make every turn because you only got two actions you could do. Um, I mean, like I said, you want to buy multiple guests, you want to build an annex, you you want to draw cards into your hand but you know you can't have too many cards because it's going to cost you money um you've got choices when you're playing the guests to the table one one of the weird things i think in this game which is actually it works out really neat is the back of the cards will tell you the rank of the guest so when i'm drawing from the deck before i draw a card i know if it's a zero one two three and and so i'll flip i look at the card i have i'll say oh the next one's a two that's going to affect where i place this one Especially if I've you know converted some of the other rooms already, why would it make a difference? Um, well, for example, the one the room service card that I know if I place a three, I get three coins right away just for placing a guest there. You know, if I see that the one in my hand is a, a one and the next one's a zero, well, I know I don't want to put either of those into that space. I'm going to wait till I see a three, or hope I see a three. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so you kind of end up looking at the two numbers and judging what you think is coming up and how many empty spaces you have left and all that. Plus, you, you, you're also deciding, do I want to put it on my space and and then collect a franc at the end of the round if I, if I didn't buy him, or do I really think I want to buy this card so I should put him somewhere else? Um, so all those end up becoming a lot of interesting choices as you play. And the game plays quickly. It's maybe, I'd say, 15 minutes for a game. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's not bad. Maybe 20, but no more than that for sure. And I'm always a fan of multi-use cards. I know that's one of my wife's mm-hmm. favorite mechanics. Okay. Well, I mean, there's, there's definitely this in the game. You know, there's the, the drafting, the hand, hand management. And when you play multiplayer, it becomes interesting. Like, Well, how is there drafting? Each, you're not drafting hands between the players. Everything you, just goes not, on the table. No. Well, you're buying the cards. I'm calling that drafting. It's an auction mechanic, no? I guess so. I guess you could look at it that way. Yeah, everybody's... Everybody's taking turn buying a card. Yeah, that's an auction mechanic. I think it's more of an auction. Well, I guess it's not even an auction mechanic. I think it's just a buying <laughs> mechanic. Because drafting yeah, means that you have a hand of cards and you pick one and you pass on. Yeah, and that's sort of happening. I don't know. Anyway, it's irrelevant what we're going to call it. It's relevant <laughs> for people who want to make sure they understand what we're talking about. But you don't get to start with a hand of cards, right? Do you? You, you always start with two peasants. Okay, so... but. Yeah, so then it's not but really drafting. It. It's just buying stuff. Okay. Well, there you go. Forget drafting. Um, Easy enough. Lesson learned. Albert has no idea what he's talking about. 
Yep. No. I'll probably make I'm it just, really make easy it to beat him at the end of the show. <laughs> you know, I usually lose the first game I play of anything. <laughs> also, that that forty frank limit on the score track is really tough. Um, it you know there'll be times where oh I, I really want to kill a couple guests, but I know if I kill these two guests, I'm gonna go up to like forty eight points, and so I'm basically losing eight because because it caps at. 40. But what happens if you just pass a bunch of times, or can you only pass once per round? You have two actions each round. You could pass both, but that doesn't do you much good. So you could pass once and then kill a guest or kill a guest and then pass and and that's fine but but you're quickly running out of actions and as you're watching that deck diminish uh-huh and uh, and also it's like well it, i could kill one and pass and now the other one is just gone he, he he leaves the inn for the night lucky guy and four new guests show up so i'll kill one of them uh-huh. you know and with luck they're a good guest <laughs> guess i could afford so so that that becomes tough and in the solo game i think a winning score starts around a hundred or hundred and ten, something like that. Like, and a good winning score is one sixty. I've managed a hundred and ten, maybe hundred and fifteen, but not more than that. How mu- it's tough. How much effort is it to con- constantly have to be dealing out cards? That's not bad at all. You you deal out the four cards on the table. It's interesting because you're making choices where to place them, and then you spend your time trying to figure out what you're going to buy and what you're going to, you know, discard and all that. Um, so I, I, I don't find the upkeep annoying at all. I find it part of the game. Okay. Which, which is really neat. And all you're doing is you're trying to beat your high score, right? Yep. It's beat a, beat your high score type of game. Okay. Um, you know, I've played nine or 10 times, I think now, and, and I'm nowhere near close to getting a good score. So I think it's going to have a, a long life yet. And the couple of times I thought I was doing really well, um, I forgot about that 40-point limit at the end, and, and that caused me a good 30 points. Because there's a couple Annex cards, for example. The ones I said, you get three points for every green card in the deck. I said, I'm going to get, there's there's 12 or 13 in the deck. I'm going to get a, a good 30 or 40 points. And then I realized that I'm going to end the game with 30 points in the in already, in the score track. Which means I'm only going to get 10 more no matter what. Oh, so you have to make sure that you empty out your front, your... <laughs> your uh, money yeah. into laundry if you can yep i mean you can pass twice in a round right so you should be able to just like dump and run yeah so so one of them well you wouldn't pass twice you'd pass once and dump it all and then your next action would be something hopefully that gives you money but e- either way it ends up at the end of the oh, game you can saying, launder well, really as much money as you want when you pass i thought you can only do 10 at a time when you pass oh uh, no i'm sorry that wasn't clear then you could launder as much as you want ah. and and not, not only can you convert your your franks your ready cash into francs at the bank, but you can convert francs at the bank into ready cash if you need some. Ah. Oh, so how it's really that hard fighting with that wealth track then, even if you can empty out the whole thing? What Once you get your engine going, it can be tricky. Yep. There's a couple other things I didn't mention, though. For example, there's one of the guests is a, a, a sheriff or, or, or a policeman. If... If there's one of those in the end at the end of the round and you have any unburied corpses, you lose automatically. Oh, finally, we have someone who actually is getting suspicious of all of this horrible activity occurring. <laughs> you know, usually, well, a couple times what happens is, oh, I, I really need to bury these people, but I also want to do these other actions. And there's there's a constable there. Oh, I'll kill a constable. 
That's okay. Oh. <laughs> and now I've got three dead bodies. And then, I'll, you know, I'll fix it next turn. Next turn, there's another constable again. It's like, oh, i got to kill him too. And I can only bury one of them. <laughs> and, you know, you start getting yourself in trouble. And I haven't lost the oh, game yeah, because starting, of that yet. Starting murder track but... <laughs> just is sure to get you in trouble. That's a good lesson to learn with this game. <laughs> yeah, but it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Would you play this with your kid? Um, yeah, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Huh. It's not that dark and grim at all. Um, they haven't had shown interest in it, but yeah, murder, burying, well. killing policemen, <laughs> hiding your horrible crimes. Yeah, not that dark. Yeah, yeah, and you know the guests be, because of the way the art is, they, they sort of look creepy anyway. They so you do don't look feel creepy. Bad for them, they look. They all look no. like evil people. Just looking at the art, they look like they're evil people. Yeah, and that's a thing. It, it it makes it easier to play the game. It makes you to to feel less bad about what's going on in the game and the theme. Because of the art, I think it's it could become very lighthearted. And there's a, one thing that's weird in the multiplayer game, which I don't quite understand yet. Um, well, I mean, I guess I do. If you bury a person, you could choose to bury them on anybody's annex. So I, you have three annex, and I have a couple. I could bury them on your side, and then we split the money. And I think the reason you do that is I may not have any annex. I may just be killing people and not worry about annex. Mm. Or or I may really need to bury somebody. And I don't have any annex right now. Because remember, you got to bury them in an annex. And each annex could hold anywhere between zero and three bodies, depending on the size of the annex. And then you need to build another annex. I mean, that's an interesting strategy. Have you ever tried doing a strategy of going very light on annex and just using everybody else's? I've only played multiplayer once. Oh. No, I, no, I hadn't tried that. I'll say that this is a game, play multiplayer, and so far playing it that way once. The the first time you play, you will do really, really poorly until you start getting an, a sense of the flow of the game. Because mm-hmm. that, that that one time I played that way, yeah, it was a shutout game. It was, you know, I had like double everybody's score or something like that. It was just because I already understood what I needed to do, and they gave me a huge lead. But, you know, it's such a fast game. After we played it, I was like, hey, let's try it again. Cool. So, mm-hmm. and nobody else was bothered by nobody else was bothered by the coffins lying around. No, not at all. <laughs> Everybody seems to have a fun Do time. Do coffins give you any points? There's the big gold number on the coffins. No, so that's just the back of the card, and um, it's a coffin showing you that the person's dead, and the numbers there just showing you the rank of that card. Uh, so yeah, so that's the bloody end. Morbid, horribly morbid. It is morbid. I find that when I want to play a fast, quick game, I'm going to this a lot. Cool. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll play the Bloody End. So I think it's a a nice, quick-to-set-up, easy-to-play game that's interesting and fun. With pretty art. With pretty art. <laughs> are, are there any issues you've had with the game? The very first time I played, I was confused about the how to set up the board with the keys, and I, I put keys on all eight rooms. And so there's a ton of guests each time, and I went through the deck really fast, and mm. that, that was frustrating mm. and not at all fun. But that's been it. Okay. The, uh, well, the other thing that I don't like is setting up the first time you play is counting out 27 cards to discard. That's kind of a, a bit much. Really? 27 cards? You didn't have that problem with packs, as I recall. 
Well, <laughs> I didn't mention it for Pat. Oh, King. okay. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't find that too hard. I don't think. Yeah, yeah I mean, you asked me if I had any issues with it. That's the, that's the worst of it. Oh, okay, fine. You're just trying to find nitpicks. Exactly. How large are the Frank tokens? They're small. Um, They're the same size as the keys. Maybe a little bit bigger, but about the same size. They're big enough. They're not too big. It's it's a small box also, and everything fits pretty compactly. You know, it's got an insert, but within within the space provided, other than the insert, everything fits well and tight. the The board is not the size of the box, and that bugs me. <laughs> you know, I, I, that always bugs me with a game. You get a game, and it's you know, it's ten by ten box, and the board is six by six, or, or whatever. Why did they do that? <laughs> How big is the box? Oh, I'd, this one is probably, I'd say, 8 by 10 or so. But ju- the board is just narrower. You know, The board is probably an inch or two narrower. And that, that sort of thing, just I dislike it. So it's a small little box. Mm-hmm. All right. And so that's uh, Escape from Monkey Island. That's Escape from Monkey Island? You are such a special person, Albert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you you've played Escape from Monkey Island? I don't think you could possibly say that it's Escape from Monkey Island. No, I've I've never played the Monkey Island games at all. I I know of them, but I've never played. Them. Really, you've never played mm-hmm. any of them? Nope. My wife has. You should play them. I, I know they're. I've heard about them. I know they're great. I you should play them. Up. Yeah, maybe. Not too likely to happen. Why not? You don't play video games? Yeah, I just don't play video games much. Oh, well. Poor Albert. (laughs) Well, we know what Albert's missing. But the real question is, what is the game missing? What is it missing? It is missing asparagus. <laughs> well, unfortunately, the random word for today was not asparagus. <laughs> As with every time after we review a game, we talk about what's it missing. We pick two random words as submitted by our excellent listeners. Um, and Albert and I are going to argue for 20 seconds each about why the game would be better off with those random things. For today, we have Albert's submission is coming from Andy, which is cleaning, which really seems to fit quite well, I would think. Uh, And for Jason Clark, I have animated tokens, and I don't even understand what an animated token is. Animated tokens? Animated tokens. you want it to be. You said cleaning? Like house cleaning? Like cleaning, like house cleaning. Like house cleaning? Knock, knock, knock. House cleaning, excuse me. Stop arguing my side, please. Darn it. <laughs> Curses. Well, I guess you're going to go first since I already started yours. <laughs> Do we know who's leading already in the last one? Let's see. I only just posted the, this about an hour or two ago. But we already have 12 results. Wow, okay. Of which two thirds of them are for Danger Mouse. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know why? It's that mouse in the box is just super handy to eat those, you know, those juice components. I don't want to hear it at all. Get out of here. Pick if you want to go first. <laughs> you trouble uh, me. Uh, uh, um, cleaning, huh? I'll go first. All right. Since I already started arguing for you. Ready? Set? Mm-hmm. Go. 
Yeah, so what this game needs is house cleaning, room service. Not only can you collect money off the dead bodies and the guests that stayed and survived the night, but now you can charge them for, for cleaning their room, make it presentable. And th- think of all the extra stuff you could find after that. Stop. Because you sort of just fill out. You actually had three yeah. seconds left, but you just Did sort it. of ended uh, it there. I don't know what else I could say. I could do a jingle. <laughs> ta, 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 ta. What were going to say? You're not talking about, A, house cleaning to clean up the blood so the police can't find you, or trying to search all of the couches afterwards for all the loose change? Yeah, no. So, <laughs> so apparently in the historical Bloody Inn, they poisoned the guests. So there is no blood. Oh. Just got to clean up the poison? Like the big... Big dive Maybe apps. so, yeah. They're still finding all the loose change of the couch, sir. <laughs> they shall always be finding all the loose change of the couch. Now I have to do animated tokens. Uh, okay, I'm ready to go. Here we go. Ready, set, go. So animated tokens are presumably like if you ever have those cars where if you change the way you're looking at it, so it changes the view of it. Like, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's like got the plastic, so if you turn it. So imagine if you had all of those cards where as you turn them a bit, it would show them actually like dying from the poison just to add to the continued morbid humor, and that would just be an awesome component. Done. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll see what people think. Well, you're supposed to have a five-second rebuttal if you want it. But I think I've already used your five-second rebuttal to argue for your side, at least. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm fine. (sighs) I'm confident. I'm confident that we'll win. Oh, the the pain (laughs) of the random number generator. Oh, the pain. Uh, I feel like I've been Arkham Horror and I drew tentacles. Oh, darn those counters. There's only three (laughs) in the bag, right? There's only one in the bag. One? (laughs) And every time I say everything but tentacle is a win, and I always draw a tentacle. <laughs> and this time I got you got housekeeping for a hotel game. Housekeeping? Knock, knock, knock. <laughs> Do you have a spare body for me to clean up? Excuse me. I would have not thought of housekeeping if you hadn't said that, honestly. But okay. <sighs> oh, Albert. <laughs> oh, Albert. Oh, the pain. The pain, Albert. End it all. Cut off the oh. show right here. Just stop the show. All right. Bye, guys. Wait, really? <laughs> Why not? I just killed all the guests. All right. We're done there. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one. And we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening. I've lost you, Albert. Have you been murdered?